0: check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.
1: Today, we will be diving into Cardlytics. Founded in 2008, Cardlytics operates as an advertising platform integrated with the digital channels of banks. It allows advertisers to identify potential customers from their spending habits and reach those customers directly within their mobile banking applications. Today, Cardlytics is one of the largest digital ad platforms, seeing data on 50% of every card swipe in the U.S. To help break down Cardlytics, I will be joined by Cliff Sosen, founder of CAS Investment Partners. During our conversation, we touch on what makes Cardlytics' value proposition so valuable to the ecosystem, how Cardlytics' measurement capabilities differ from Google, and what is needed for Cardlytics to reach its full potential. Throughout our conversation, Cliff gives a great perspective on how this management team brought unique insight to this opportunity, but then faced struggles as the company started to scale. His understanding of the history of the business shines throughout the discussion. I hope you enjoy this breakdown of Cardlytics. All right. So Cliff, we're going to talk about Cardlytics today, probably a business that a lot of people have not heard of before, or if they have heard of it, they've may used it without knowing that the company exists. Because of that, I think the right place to start is with the very basic core action of the company itself. When a user uses Cardlytics, what literally is happening? And then give us a sense of scope of how many people are doing that core action and where.
2: Sure. Well, thanks for having me. So if you open your banking app, what you'll find if you bank with J.P. Morgan Chase or Wells Fargo or Bank of America or many of the other leading banks, somewhere in their app you'll find offers from advertisers such as Starbucks to save money shopping in categories that you probably already shop in. Those offers are powered by Cardlytics. And that fundamentally is the business. What's happening is Cardlytics is sourcing those offers on behalf of banks from advertisers, and then presenting you a targeted set of offers based on your shopping preferences and what the advertisers are trying to achieve. It makes sense to step back and to walk through how Cardlytics creates value across the ecosystem. Because there's really four players, right? There's the banks, there's the consumers, there's the advertisers, and of course there's Cardlytics. And then once you kind of understand how they're creating value for everyone involved, then you can sort of think about all the ways that they can expand on that going forward. So Cardlytics from an advertiser's perspective is incredibly powerful because it really allows, from what I've seen, a much better level of both targeting and measurement than any other ad channel. So in the case of a Starbucks offer, Starbucks can quite literally identify people who shop in the cafe category, say at Dunkin', but not at Starbucks, or could group them into deciles based on what percentage wallet share Starbucks has, and can segment them based on whether they're in or not in the Starbucks loyalty program, and can segment them based on whether or not they have shopping that occurs near a Starbucks or not, and can segment them based on how likely they are to respond to offers in general. And so you can sort of imagine getting more and more granular, and there's basically no limit in theory as to how granular you can get. And then in any piece of segmentation, you can identify the population that meet those criteria, you can present that population, the offer, and you can have a holdout group. And then because you have perfect visibility into spending both across the test group and the control group, you can then measure the difference that occurs in spending between the two in a randomized control trial format. And that can give you to the penny measurement of the efficacy of the offer in creating incremental spend. That's just really unique in advertising, just given the combination of targeting and measurement. And it works really well. It turns out that consumers are very responsive to these offers, and a typical advertiser will get about $5 of incremental spend per dollar you know spent in the channel. And obviously, that varies by category, and it varies by campaign type. And so every segment is going to have different economics. But you can see how that be very valuable to most advertisers. The next constituency are banks. And banks, people notice the revenue share that banks get, which is obviously for every dollar an advertiser spends, about 30 cents will go to the consumer. And the remaining 70 cents is roughly split between Cardlytics and the bank. So the banks get 35 cents out of it, which is great for them. But by far, the bigger benefit they get, which is about five to 10 times larger than the 35 cents they get, is it increases customer loyalty to the bank. They attract less They spend more. They revolve more on their credit cards. Those changes in behavior are worth about five to ten times as much as the 35 cents that the banks get. So it's really great from a bank's perspective. Then consumers, obviously, they prize being able to get what is essentially free money to shop in categories, to make modest changes in their shopping patterns. Going to Home Depot versus Lowe's, shopping at Starbucks versus Dunkin', staying at a Hyatt versus Hilton and so on and so forth. And so consumers benefit in that way. And of course, Cardlytics, out of that dollar, they get 35 cents. And it's one of these businesses that on that 35 cents, there's very little incremental cost.
1: So let's just take the Starbucks example. So I like vanilla lattes or something. It costs $5. Typically, I open my JP Morgan or my Bank of America app or whatever, and I see an offer, which is something, I don't know, Starbucks says, I can buy that latte for $4. And what do I do? I click that and then what else needs to happen?
2: From the consumer's perspective, you open it up, you see some offers, the offers will typically look something like 5% off at Starbucks, you tap the offer on your phone, you'll get some message basically saying that you've activated the offer, and it'll have some text about what the offer is, you close that message, and it's done It's now connected to your card. When you then use the card associated with that account, that offer will automatically be applied. And depending on the bank implementation, you'll either be notified instantly, or in some of the implementations, it takes a day. But you'll be notified that you've saved 5% off and you spent $5 at Starbucks, you know, you'd save 25 cents.
1: So it seems like a really critical piece of why this is interesting is it is a completely closed loop, meaning everyone knows when the thing was clicked, but also when the transaction actually happened. And that's probably pretty unique in this kind of business.
2: That's for sure. And then also just in general, Cardlytics in running this is able to take all the information that your bank would have about you and use it in the targeting and measurement of the efficacy of these offers, which makes them from an advertiser's perspective, an incredibly unique and extremely effective advertising channel.
1: Just to level set sort of the scope of the business today. So like how many end customers are they hooked into via a bank? Just give us a sense of some of the numbers around the scope of the business today.
2: It's just about 170 million monthly active users, that is to say accounts where the holder of the account was shown an offer right now. We don't know exactly how many are sort of out there in the economy. Their MAUs cover about 55% of all card spend in the economy.
1: I'm sure the obvious comparison that everyone thinks of is from an advertiser's perspective, let's stick with Starbucks. How does this compare to how they think about Google and Facebook and other digital ways of interfacing with their customers. So when you were diving through that comparison, what interesting did you find? Like what is the mental difference from their perspective of those massive dominant online ad platforms versus Cardlytics? In terms of the
2: return, what I would say it's sort of interesting, the quality of measurement for Facebook and Google, as good as it is in some cases, is far inferior to the quality of measurement at Cardlytics. And so, I think It depends on who's measuring and how. But in general, the joke I've told is that the stated returns that you get from Google and Facebook are usually better than Cardlytics, but the actual returns are usually far worse. Whereas with Cardlytics, the returns are actually what they say they are. A lot of people frame it in this sort of idea of, well, I could spend at Google and get an X return, or I can spend at Cardlytics and get a Y return. I don't necessarily think that's the right framing. And it's a framing people do. But I think in the fullness of time, the way to properly deal with Cardlytics is you sort of think of all the things you can do to optimize your business, be it call center answer times or pricing or all the other advertising channels that you can be in. And then at the end, you've done something to sort of reasonably optimize your business, What you're then going to do is locally maximize just according to maximizing Cardlytics. So you say, OK, fine. Now, if I were to use this channel, if my incremental margins are 50 percent and I can get two dollars back for every dollar that I spend for targeting some subset of consumers in Cardlytics, then I should do that for that all the way down to that last subset even if there might be other things where I might think there's a return that's higher somewhere else in my business, those returns are always very uncertain, whereas here the return is eminently measurable and very precise. And so not spending down to the last penny literally leaves free money on the table. Cardlytics, in some sense, the joke is that it's a broken slot machine. You, you put money in and, and you always get more money out than you put in. But yeah, and the big difference is that people don't trust measurement in digital media, measurement in media full stop. And so one of Cardlytics' challenges is distinguishing... Its measurement quality is so much better than everybody else's. And that makes direct comparisons a little tricky and also makes the way you deal with it a little tricky. When you have nearly perfect measurement, you use a channel differently than when you don't.
1: Coming back to the reason why they could be so much more powerful, it seems to be like it must be the data, literal spending data that they have on the customers. And that Facebook and Google sort of one step up are sort of like feeling their way blindly towards the same end state. But rather than me looking at a picture that I like or a website, it's literally what am I willing to spend money on, which means that that data and the algorithms that it fuels must just be central to the success of this platform, which begs the question, how the hell did they get it in the first place? So. This had to start somewhere. What's the history here of how the business came to be and maybe its first couple of big wins? Because it seems like that's a hell of a sales job to convince some large bank to open up its data, open up its distribution to its customers. How do they do that? Seems like a Herculean task.
2: Yeah. Well, the Cardlytics story is one of pushing a rock uphill in the mud. <laughs> so this idea emerged 2010-ish period. And a number of people tried to start this business. And at the time, there was talk of Google, you know, going into banking, for example, because they wanted
1: to get to that level, get to this
2: data. And a number of people started businesses like this. Most of those people came from the advertising world. And their message to banks was something like, send us your data. We'll do great things for you. You'll make a lot of money and trust us. And the banks thought about it and said, that's interesting, but no, thank you. And what Scott and Lynn founded Cardlytics, came up with was they said, well, actually, what if we did a different architecture? What if the bank's data never left the bank? And so the way the Cardlytics platform works is you can think about it as two related software systems. On the outside of the bank firewall is a system for managing these offers. So managing these campaigns. So you sort of imagine designing your campaign specifications and so forth. Then you send the campaign specifications into the bank firewall, where there's software that implements the campaign, identifies the people, gathers summary data and then the summary data without PII comes back out on the other side so that you can then adjust your campaign designs and so forth in this way the bank literally never lets the data leave from behind its firewall and that proved to be a winning innovation Scotland came out of banking they came out of capital one in some sense that sort a of spoke bank they sort of knew how to navigate these very large complex organizations they were eventually able to win I believe it was Regions, and that got them going. And then their big break kind of came when they won Bank of America. And at the time, people thought this was it. They were going to be the next Google. And that proved not to be the case. Turned out that even with Bank of America and Regions, they still had really very little reach. And that Within that relatively small reach, consumers were just not that digitally engaged. It turns out that people are much more likely to use this when they have mobile banking versus when they're sort of doing desktop banking. And so what happened was they had this little channel and they went to advertisers, and advertisers didn't care because it was just too small to be worth their time and attention. And it was new and different, and it wasn't clear whose job it was, and no one was going to cut the red tape for something that didn't matter. And so they struggled to get advertisers. And then, of course, Without a lot of content, wasn't that exciting to consumers. And without a lot of advertisers or consumers, it wasn't really that exciting to banks. And you can see how this is a problem. And so they basically slogged in the mud, uphill in the mud for years and years and years and years. Finally, they nearly went broke, I think, twice or three times. They had an IPO that nearly failed. They got the IPO off. And then in the summer of 2018, they announced in sort of quick succession the signing of Wells and Chase the history of Cardiotics is written, that will be a sort of very important moment in the company because suddenly, suddenly, as in bank times, so like within the next two years, they suddenly had a lot more reach. Yeah. And with that reach, a lot of their problems began to change. And of course, the other thing that really worked for them was mobile banking, which suddenly made it... When people use mobile banking, they are vastly more... Yeah. I forget the exact statistic, but it is sort of circa... or something of their use comes from mobile banking, even though mobile banking represents circa 40% of banking. So there's just this big shift that helps them with that.
1: So the scope of this today, if you think about the $0.35 or whatever it is that Cardlytics is earning on the advertising dollar spent by the advertisers, it adds up to roughly $200 of revenue or something like that, I think, in the last, say, 12 months-ish. I'll correct you there.
2: The $0.70 cents adds up to roughly $200 million. They it.
1: So it's a cost of goods for them is to pay it back to the bank or split it with the so bank, it, I should it, say.
2: So a dollar that an advertiser pays, they call it billings. It's yeah. a non-gap idea. The $0.30 cents that goes to the consumer is not considered revenue by yeah. the accountants. That leaves you $0.70, cents, which is considered revenue. Yeah. And then they have cost of goods, which is the share with the banks, which then gets you down to $0.35. Cents and there's a little bit of other compute and stuff like that.
1: So their gross margins are probably, you know, in the 30s or 40s or something like that.
2: A little under 50%.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you add all that up and you get several hundred million, which is both a lot of money and very, very little money in the grand scheme of things if you compare it to the big ad platforms. So with a lot of reach into these banks and a huge success of online ad marketplaces, you could see why if this works, it could become massive, but it still needs to become massive. And I'm curious from the advertiser's perspective before we switch over to the bank, What kinds of companies have had the most success on Cardletics? Like, is it a pretty narrow cohort of types of advertisers where these mobile banking offers tend to work? Is that a subset of what could work on Facebook and Google? How do you think about that part? Google, you know, you're buying a search term. There's no limit to how low the price that search term can be. And so
2: in the early days, I don't know what the price of a term like car insurance would have been, but I imagine it would have been a penny or two. And so the return would have been I mean, ridiculous. Like, I mean, it would have been Cardlytics was a free money machine. This was like a free lottery machine or something, right? And so the first thing that you'd get is that Cardlytics, because you're doing offers for consumers, even if you Cardlytics didn't charge anything, you're still paying that 30 cents to the consumer, which fundamentally constrains how good the return can be. So even though the returns are great, they're not necessarily out of this world great the way the early returns might have been for Facebook or Google, which would have driven early adoption. The second issue is that Cardlytics, because they're working through banks, banks wanted historically a lot of control over who the advertisers are. They want to have like large enterprises with large brands that people recognize, which is fine. But the issue is that these tend to be organizations that are slower to try and adopt new things. And so whereas Google could go find whoever it was who happened to want to buy whatever word, Cardlytics had to convince Starbucks to do this. And that's harder. So that also constrained their ability to get early adoption. And then the other piece is actually the UI UX itself. If you look at the UI as it exists today, unless you're a U.S. Bancorp customer, it's basically a tile with the logo and like you know, 15% off or something in it. The tile is tiny. It's a centimeter by a centimeter or something. And so there's no room for real copy. And what that means is that if you're Joe's Burger, you may not have a logo that is widely recognized. Right. And so it's very difficult for you to sort of use this channel effectively without an improvement to the UI UX.
1: Kind of interesting, like inversion of Google and I'll just stick with Google, where you could almost think about the early days of that as like a permissionless platform. If you're willing to pay, you get access, but imperfect targeting. And this is sort of the opposite story. It's like perfect targeting because you have spending, but very permissioned access to the consumer and lots of limitation. Maybe that's the mud on the hill (laughs) in terms of who they could go after in advertising. But that's all changing. That would be kind of my summary back to what you said.
2: Yeah, that's right. Permission versus permissionless access is a nice way to
1: put it. So that's all evolving, right? I'm going to come back to like the technical side of this, like what's impressive that they built that would be hard to copy or whatever else, but first is continuing in our kind of stakeholder concept here. So if we go to the banks now, where there's two sources of return, they split with for lending their distribution channel to Cardlytics and the data, but also the much larger return in terms of the quality of the customer that results from their interaction with Cardlytics. Maybe the stupid and obvious question is like, why not at some scale take it in-house and do it themselves, given if you're a Chase or a Bank of America, there's an enormous amount of customers and data. It seems like a huge potential risk to the business. How do you think about that risk factor and the motivations of the bank of outsourcing versus insourcing something like this?
2: That's obviously a huge risk factor to think through. So recall that if you're a bank, a large chunk of the economic benefit you get isn't in the form of the revenue share. If you get 35 cents of revenue share, it's likely that you're also getting something on the order of $1.50 to $3.50 of other benefits to your economics, to your ecosystem. And the revenue share itself is something on the order of, say, 10 to 20% of the total economic value that you're getting from this. And so in some sense, you know, if you took all the revenue share, you'd have something on the order of 10 to 20% more value, which is nice. But if that caused you to get 10 to 20% fewer offers in the channel and or to incur costs, then it would be a losing proposition. It turns out that there are a lot of economies of scale to the Cardlytics business in a variety of places. And so one is you can think of advertisers as incurring a certain amount of fixed cost to learn about and manage a channel. And as a consequence, advertisers really value reach. And so a sales force will have more success selling a bigger channel than they will a smaller channel. And you need only look at Cardlytics' success difficulties, really, selling when it was just Bank of America, and then how much they've improved their ability to sell when they added Chase to understand, to see how the benefits of reach increase the saleability of the product, increase the level of interest from advertisers. That's a big thing that would make it difficult for for a bank to replicate. Secondly, in some sense, Cardlytics is a distributor, right? They go, they sell these products to advertisers, and the cost of that sales relationship and so forth is fixed. And obviously, if you're selling twice as much ad capacity, that's a gain from scale there. And then also, the channel itself is characterized, Cardlytics' business itself is a lot of technology built into it. There's a lot of learning curve effects in building that technology over time. Obviously, there's the actual ability to serve these ads and produce metrics for advertisers, but then now Cardlytics has gone and built a, a self-service platform. And they've done other things, for example, with this bridge acquisition and so forth, which add to the capabilities that Cardlytics has and could all, of course, be replicated, but it takes a fair bit of time and has a fair bit of cost to do, and then after you've done it, it has a fair bit of maintenance cost associated with it. In some elements of it, for example, the self-service platform, a key bit of a successful self-service platform is getting ad agency personnel to learn to use it and to want to use it. And that would require them to learn to use too and so forth, which they're not particularly predisposed to do. All of these things make it seem to me that it would be improbable that even the larger banks would be able – if they were to do it themselves, they would be meaningfully worse off because they'd get – 20 30 40 50% fewer ads in the channel and they'd also incur a lot of costs and combined it would be a losing proposition
1: and this gets obviously harder as they get more successful and get better and better at all these elements so it sounds like one way to think about it is their take rate is just really low and if the take rate on the value created for the bank partner is let's say 385 total per dollar spent or something like that and they're just taking 35 cents. Like That's a really low take rate on the value that they're creating. So like, why bother going through all the trouble for all the reasons you said? Do you think that Visa is a fair comparison for this business just in terms of how it sits almost as like a protocol at the center of all these different constituencies and the flow of information and sort of becoming like a standardization measure that sits in the middle and sort of disappears?
2: I actually just on the take rate point, but before the Visa
1: point, I think that's very true. I would also add to it
2: that the advertiser is getting a ton of value that they don't necessarily need to get. So if you think about that dollar that's being spent by the advertiser, the advertiser, let's say they're getting a five to one return and they have, say, 60 percent incremental margins. They're getting three dollars of incremental profit for that. So they're getting two dollars of value net. The bank, as we said, is getting—you could use your 385, but let's just call it three bucks of value. So that gets you to five dollars of value. The consumer is getting 30 cents. Cardlytics is getting 35 cents. Cardlytics—they are collecting seven percent of the value that's being created in this ecosystem. Conceptually, you know, why shouldn't it be 15 percent or something? I think right. is a fair question over time. You can clearly imagine that happening with the banks gradually improving the favorability of the revenue share terms, and you can also imagine that happening. You use it, you can obviously increase the price you charge them. As Is Visa a good analogy? I mean, you know, it's this idea of it as an industrial utility is a fair analogy. Uh, it may be in some sense better, I think, than Visa, because Visa, they have to charge the merchants. The merchants don't necessarily feel like they come out ahead. Whereas here, there's really no one in the ecosystem who isn't benefiting. And you're sort of empowering everyone. Regulatory concerns about interchange and stuff like that. And I find it hard to imagine Elizabeth Warren complaining that, Jamie Dimon, are you really allowing people to save a dollar on their coffees? Yes, 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 we are, Senator. I'm so embarrassed.
1: To take the comparison just one level further, because I think it's interesting, and this gets now into the customer, the actual end customer that's getting the deals perspective. My guess is almost zero of those customers have ever even heard of Cardlytics. It doesn't say powered by Cardlytics in the bank's app or anything, whereas almost everyone's heard of Visa. How do you think about that? Does it matter at all that anyone know that Cardlytics even exists for this to be an interesting business? Does brand matter for them? Like, It seems like a strange thing that it would just be completely invisible to the end customer.
2: I think they can have a lot of success without having a brand. The banks want the reach and the technology that Cardlytics brings, but they want it to look uniquely them. I guess in the abstract, it'd be better if all the offers said powered by Cardlytics and Cardlytics could build a consumer brand on top of everything. But I think that it's really important to the banks that this be Bank of deals or Chase offers or, you know, whatnot, and then that they can layer their own secret sauce on top of it.
1: If you think about what will power the sustainable advantage of the business long term, you've talked a lot about scale effects. Maybe it's an interesting excuse to talk about, I guess, network effects or a version of scale effects themselves. But it's a constant, it's like the term everyone throws around now, like they try to assign it to every business as the reason it's going to do well. What have you learned just generally about the concept of network effects in businesses? And do you think and to what degree do you think that applies potentially to something like Cartletics?
2: Yeah, when it comes to a lot of the buzzwords out there, I always get persnickety about (laughs) defining them right. And so network effects and disruption are two of my pet peeves. They both have fairly narrow and precise definitions in economics that people have come to mean kind of like anything that's fun. And so... Disruption is the Clayton Christensen concept. It's this idea that you start with a business and you're selling a product that looks like a toy and the incumbents don't care because it's going after a market that is either not their market or is a very small market that is not very profitable for them. Their main customers don't care because the toy doesn't have features or functionality that matters to them. But the subset of customers care about other things that aren't the primary vectors of competition in the major market. And what happens is over time, the toy gets better and better, and eventually it gets to the point where the toy actually can compete for the main business, and it has whatever things made it nice to the people who originally adopted it. And then by then, the incumbents are in trouble. They can't react. That's a very precise thing. And then everyone else talks about like how like –
1: Anything new is disruption. Anything new is disruption,
2: right? <laughs> the other one is network effects. Network effects refer specifically to this idea. It's a demand side effect that the use of a business by one person improves the value of the business to somebody else. And so the classic example there being phone systems or something, whereas more people are signed up, it gets better. In this case, I do think that there may be network effects, but it's complicated. Um, it is definitely clear that as you increase the richness of the content available, consumers use Cardlytics more. So adding you know, Home Depot will cause consumers to look at the offers more often and be more inclined to activate them and will therefore improve the effectiveness of, say, the Burger King offer that's also in the channel. So that's clearly a network effect, right? The, the supply side, it's a demand side benefit that's helping everybody. The counterpoint to that, though, is take, for example, the hardware category. Home Depot... You could imagine Home Depot says, well, we'd like to target people who shop in the hardware category, but not at Home Depot. And let's just pretend there's only three places: Ace, Home Depot, and Lowe's. Well, so they target all the ACE and Lowe's customers. And that's great. And then what happens is so if you're a Home Depot customer, you have no offers. If you're an Ace customer or a Lowe's customer, you have an offer from Home Depot. And then, well, Lowe's joins the channel. And Lowe's says, well, we'd like to target the other two guys too. And so what happens is now a Home Depot customer, you now have an offer. You didn't have one before. If you're an Ace customer, you have two offers. Presumably, you're not necessarily buying that much more hardware. So presumably, you may be activating both, but you're only using one of them. The benefit in that scenario to... I've lost track of my hardware stores, but the benefit of the second hardware store is smaller than the benefit of the first, and in part comes from cannibalizing the first. And then the third person comes along, and now everyone has two offers from the other places that they... And the whole market actually doesn't get any bigger at all. I mean, it's a highly stylized example, and the world is far more complicated than that. But basically... In that case, you can see how one plus one is in the first example, one plus one is more than two. In the second example, one plus one is less than two. Yeah. I don't think, given just how think about restaurants or hardware is a very unusual case, given that there's so few competitors and it's they're fairly fungible. But even then you know, I think that there's probably a lot of opportunity. I don't think it's nearly quite as algorithmic as I make it seem in that description. I do think in aggregate, it's probably much more like one plus one equals three mostly across the system. I think as it gets bigger, it gets better. But there are cases where as it gets bigger, it doesn't grow as much as you might think.
1: We talked a little bit already about the importance of technology, but not about the specifics of what they've actually built. So if you think about the ways that the platform could get better, you mentioned improved UI UX, you mentioned some of the self-serve platforms, all of those things. What are the most exciting to you? Like what are the things that most drive the version of this story that the 200 of revenue is... 20 billion in five to 10 years.
2: I like to think about Cardlytics' revenue opportunity essentially as a, a set of like nested opportunities. So at present, the company is basically pursuing enterprise sales. This is selling to Chipotle and putting offers in the channel. And that is a multi-billion dollar opportunity just by itself. However, the next piece of that is is medium-sized businesses. I don't mean small businesses like your little teeny businesses, but medium businesses. Yeah. Apparently, that is something on the order of two-thirds of all advertising. And those are served through ad agencies, and ad agencies will only do that if they have a self-service platform where they can do it themselves because they need to put their spin on it and run it for their client. They don't want to basically say, this is a great idea. Client, call Cartlytics and have them do it for you. And so to make that happen, they have to build a self-service platform. That self-service platform is in release now and the company is going to start reporting at the end of q3 as to how much of the revenue is coming through that it will take time people need to in the ad agency world need to adopt it and so forth but that gets you kind of another twice as much market opportunity the next big opportunity that you get comes from improving the ui ux and this kind of works well this is very enabling for everything actually improves obviously what you can do as an enterprise client Chipotle might not want to just sell 10% off Chipotle, but they might want to highlight some picture of their new burrito or something. And also maybe Joe's Pizza doesn't have a logo that people recognize. So having a new improved UI, you can have some ad copy that delivers some branding. So it makes it much more usable for advertisers whose logos aren't as recognizable. It also, which in particular is kind of that 70% that are not as good. It's also super important the ability then to make offers that are either by category or by skew. That, the company recently made an acquisition of a company called Bridge, which I can describe what they do, but it's an important step to being able to access that data and do this, and they should be able to at this point. And so what'll happen is now Target, instead of saying you're gonna get 5% off at Target, they can say you're gonna get 15% off of home decor at Target or a dollar off Target, Private label tomato soup, or better yet, a dollar off of Campbell's soup at Target, which would be funded by Campbell's. Mm-hmm. The reason why that's really important to Target and to cartlytics is that Target has fairly heterogeneous margins across the various things that they sell. Generic offers at the store level, the economics of that vary a lot depending on what people buy. They also would love to be able to target pun intended, people who aren't in their loyalty program, who may shop one or two departments in the store, but not the other departments in the store, or, for example, to promote things that are on sale or whatever, to move particular SKUs or categories where they want to move them. The opportunity for category SKU level offers is quite big. That, of course, can only be done if you have the ability to get that data out of the retailer and also a UI UX that can present these more complex offers. Because you can't, say, save a dollar off Crest toothpaste at Walmart with the Crest logo and the Walmart logo, and maybe a picture of the Crest toothpaste or something, all in like something the size of a centimeter. It has to be like more communicative. If you combine all of those things, that optimizes, in some sense, your reach into the advertiser world. The next bit then is to say, well, how much bigger can the channel get? As I started saying, there's sort of a hundred and... 670 million MAUs over time that might be 250 maybe 300 but then also the engagement of those MAUs can be a lot higher. The self-service platform plays a big role in that at US Bancorp the company shared in its investor day that in the first three weeks since launch with the UI UX fully 50% of all MAUs at US Bancorp activated an offer which is a profound statistic and that's despite the fact that the offer set is still much more limited than it may be in the future So over time, the UI UX can drive a lot more engagement. And then also as people continue to adopt mobile banking, there's still a lot of people who don't do mobile banking. And as they adopt it, that can double the size of the channel. So those things put together, I think, have the opportunity to increase by a factor of five or or more. And so when you put it all together, that's if you start multiplying it all out, you get astronomically big numbers, not out of line with Facebook's US revenue per monthly active user.
1: How do you think about if we step back and just think about like the perfect version, like the platonic ideal of this experience from everyone's perspective? And maybe I'll set the bank aside, but at least between the advertiser and the customer, the platonic ideal is like I sell something and it's good. There's some platform that just gives me the exact perfect customer with the highest conversion and the lowest cost of acquisition to get from where we are to that platonic ideal. It seems like data we've already talked about the data advantage of having the spending. It's like the gold standard couldn't get better than that. But what role does data, data science, predictive modeling, predictive analytics start to play in a company like this is future, where I don't know how sophisticated it is today, but you could imagine this getting wild, them having a model on every person for every product, making the advertiser do less and less and less. How do you think about the role of data? Can data be a moat, generally speaking?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, data in this case is a huge moat. I mean, the, the bank's are not particularly interested in giving out their credit and debit card spending data. Certainly you can buy summary data, de-identified or whatever, ways to get some credit card data or whatnot. But the idea of having basically all the person's transaction history and also a way to talk to that person in a secure environment where there's no bots and you know it's brand safe and everything else is purely unique. And that's what the banks have. Absolutely right that Cardlytics is in its infancy would be generous. It's like it's pregnancy with regards to making optimal use of that. And they are well aware of it. So right now, for example, generally the offers are 5, 10, 15 or 20 percent. Those can't be the right numbers. The offers are actually displayed randomly. If you open your banking app, they'll usually be three or four offers or five offers, depending on your implementation. On the first page, where you're checking account balances and stuff like that, and then there'll be a place where you can say like, "See all offers," and you can go see the other, you know, 25, 30, 40, whatever it is. There's no reason why those four spots on the front page should be randomly assigned, and then when you go to the other page, the offers are randomly assorted down the page, and then you know the pricing, right? I mean, what do you charge advertisers? What's your markup effectively like that? is not done. It's basically done to be advertiser friendly. They're trying to a channel, but it's far, far, far from optimized. And then before you start considering like all the ways you've talked about being much more sophisticated about identifying which people are more susceptible to offers, less susceptible to offers, changing the offers you show people, like changing the way you display the offers in a way to drive people to discover the channel and then to like a treasure hunt through the channel. The number of things you can do is unlimited. One other framing, I mean, we keep thinking about this in ad channel, which it is, but one weather framing is that ultimately, in some sense, this is a, a channel that, that enables personalized pricing in the economy for everybody. So if you're running a ski resort, it's raining, you'd probably be willing to run a pretty big sale and you'd be willing to be particularly aggressive in selling it to people who tend to eat lunch at the ski resort when they come and who like to ski at the resort neighboring your ski resort. This is a campaign that should basically be on file and should run based on weather and should run for 15 minutes or an hour, right? Or Whatever. Movie theaters. Identify you have empty seats in the movie. The movie's going to start in, in an hour. You know it's not going to sell out. You know that there's a portion of people who buy popcorn when they go to the movies. You could pay them to go to the movies for goodness sake, right? I mean, just an unlimited number of things that you sort of can do. The thing about Cardlytics, and this comes back to the broader picture of why it's not there yet, is the channel is unbelievably powerful, right? If you just think about this nexus of attention and data, the challenge is that you can do anything with Cardlytics, but people really have to care. And... Historically, Cardlytics has had this issue where the banks are not necessarily the fastest-moving organizations. They're incredibly conservative, and this wasn't the biggest initiative of theirs. And at the same time, advertisers... Didn't fully trust or understand Cardalytics's data. They don't understand the difference between multi-factor attribution models, which is essentially garbage, a randomized control trial, which is like the gold standard of knowledge. If you've got some low-level person at some advertiser who like figures it out and loves it, but they've got a finite budget, and there's you know only so much room they can get things done. And their boss doesn't believe it. And if they want to do something really creative, Cardlytics, that doesn't have the buy-in from the banks, and it's just this whole like thing that makes it kludgy. And so. It's amazing what you can do. but And I think all of this will happen in 10 years, 15 years. You know, this is definitely a what can happen in 10 years situation, not a what can happen in two years.
1: I love the pushing the boulder up the rock in mud. At some point, this tips in their direction and the boulder just explodes down the other side. Describe the mud. Like, what's the worst kind of mud? What are the reasons that they slip and the boulder rolls back to the start and this just doesn't work? Given, I think everyone listening would probably agree, like, yes, in that idealized end state, it's like perfect, it's incredible, but to get from here to there's like anything is really hard. What would be the reasons why it fails if you had to identify a few?
2: I mean, I'd say the biggest barrier they face is advertisers understanding the difference in the quality of measurement here. If I could wave a magic wand and make it so that everybody understood why multi-factor attribution models are garbage, here's how it works. Once upon a time, Google came along And they said, oh, someone clicked a Google ad and they came to my website and they bought something. We did that for you. That seemed cool. But eventually people realized that they'd also spent $100 million buying TV and they'd built a brand over 100 years. And maybe that had something to do with them coming too. And so they tried to then come up with these things where they would say, okay, well, let's follow people around the Internet using cookies and whatnot and look at all the things they've ever done. And then what we're going to do is we're going to apply basically a bunch of econometrics to that such that. We can apply a relative apportionment of the credit to everyone. And the problem with this, of course, is it's like any association type of analysis, it's flawed, right? I mean, associations, not causation, and you can be as sophisticated as you want in your econometrics, but at best, it's sort of indicative. And people built these big things up, and these are these multi-factor attribution models that companies use. And, and that allowed them to say, oh, well, yes, we're going to give this customer came, and Facebook gets this percent, and TV gets this percent, and you know, whatever. And so then you know, Cardlytics comes along, and everyone kind of understands that all this stuff is hocus-pocus. And so nobody really trusts any of their numbers, but which is why they all put big haircuts on it. It's like, well, this thing says it gets me a 17-to-1 return, but like, I think it's probably more like two. And so, you know, what happens is Cardlytics comes along and here they are, they're doing the gold standard of understanding. You're measuring precisely the difference between the test group and the control group. And so you can calculate lift, you know, to the penny and they go to people and they say, yeah, you know, everybody tells me that they can measure and like everybody. And and there just isn't the understanding of the fundamental difference in the quality of measurement. And if people don't buy into it – and not just the one person. you got to get the whole – you know, everyone has to buy into it. And everyone has to really understand it. It's tough to describe. I've had a lot of discussions with people who are advertisers and buyers. And some of them will intellectually understand. But then as soon as you start talking about offs between channels, they forget all about it. Others i have argued with me that no, randomized control trials don't work, which I don't know what to do with that. But if it was standing between me and my sales quota, it'd be like much more than humorous, right? It'd be much worse than humorous. And so, but as people come to understand the quality of the measurement, then you can really do anything, right? Because then people will really be saying, okay, wow, like this is free money. Like how do we get as much free money as we possibly can? And you'll start to get much more buy-in. And so when you look at the history that Cardlytics has had, the challenge has always just been when they've lost the client, it's always been like, well, there was a champion for it. And you've written in a champion, went to a different job or got fired. Or there was a new CMO. Or, and then that person stopped doing it because the new person came and didn't understand or believe. Or
1: So that has the tip, too. Just like anyone new coming in is going to still use Facebook because it's so ubiquitous. Like they have to get to that point.
2: They have to get to that point. And making progress, it takes time. Size helps. As you get bigger, you can start to do stuff like you can say, well, that's interesting. What we're going to do, randomly identify 10% of your stores and just max out for those. Because we're now big enough that we'll actually show it to you in your numbers. Or skew based advertising will help. Because, you know, what we're going to do is we are going to sell iced lattes. And, like, watch what happens to your iced latte sales. And so if you can do things like that, you can create a sandbox where you can show people an effect in their numbers. And then they don't have to rely on you interpreting the randomized control trial data. Yes, you have a Nielsen report that says, like, you did it honestly, but they then don't necessarily know if they trust that. They don't even have to understand what a randomized control trial is. All they can have to do is look at their data and say, like, wow, those stores made more sales than those other stores. Like, I kind of like that. That's helping. Also, just in general, like, younger people come into the industry and are more open-minded and you go to ad agencies and those the best way to get someone to believe something is have them sell it. So get the ad agencies to start selling the stuff. A hundred ways in which they're gradually getting there. It
1: has to become a standard, yeah.
2: Yeah, so that's the mud. I mean, that really is the biggest barrier that the company has been systematically working at since the beginning.
1: If you think about a magic question where every business has tons of uncertainties, there's, you've studied it a lot, but there's lots you still don't know about it. If you could have the definitive answer to any one question about the business what would the question be?
2: You know what I would like? I know they have this. One interesting thing about Cardlytics, so for any advertiser for any segment, they know exactly how much that advertiser can spend. So they say, hey, Starbucks, you're interested in people who are light users of Starbucks, but we'd like to make them heavy users of Starbucks. We're going to present them with a medium-sized offer to get them to spend more at Starbucks and try to get them bigger. Well, so you're going to identify that population of people. And let's say that you say, OK, Starbucks, we've identified 10 million people to whom you should present this offer in Starbucks. So that's fantastic. But our budget is only such that we can spend on 3 million people. Well, what you do with your card cardlytics is you say, OK, no problem. And they randomly select 3 million people and they get the offers and the others don't. And it's a big control group, but it's what it is. And in theory, you can do that exercise for every advertiser for every segment They ignore the potential thinking of new segments or whatnot. But for the vast majority of advertisers, they are spending on the order of one percent of what they can spend. And the question that I'd like would love to have, which is actually factually answerable today, is if you just went through for all the advertisers where you've sort of done the work to figure out what they could spend and like have a good idea because you've identified the categories and you know how many people you can target and stuff. I would be curious what the sum product is. And then, of course, the next thing you could do is extrapolate that. Maybe you've done the work for Macy's, but you haven't done it for Dillard's. It's not that hard to extrapolate that to Dillard's. I'd love to get that for sort of all the big companies in the economy. And then you could further extrapolate it to sort of the medium-sized companies in the economy. I'd like to sort of build that bottoms-up approach to the TAM. And then I'd like to take it a step further and say, okay, well, now let's look at the very best Mobile users at our best implementation banks. So it would be US Bancorp right now, mobile users at US bank Corp. How active are they? And let's pretend that all of our users looked like mobile users at US Bancorp. That's a multiplier factor. Let's apply that to the analysis I just did for how much advertisers could spend in the channel. And you start working your way through it and you come up with, a, I think, a fairly thoughtful bottoms up TAM for the business. My sense is that if you did all that economy wide, the number is north of 100 billion. But I don't actually know that precisely. I have to make lots of guesses to get there.
1: What has this taught you about digital privacy? It seems like a really important vector or consideration for any company that's dealing with customer data. Obviously, Apple has tried, I think, to be at the vanguard of this, of protection of people's data and privacy. And you've already talked about the unique innovation that started the company was the fact that the bank is keeping the data in its walls. What has Cardlytics taught you about the importance of the effectiveness of focusing on privacy? Boy, if you want to kill the business, you could have a data leak or
2: something, and uh, that would be terrible. That being said, because of the way they're set up, Cardlytics is inherently very safe from a PII perspective. A good and I think accurate framing is Cardlytics helps your bank use data your bank already has to find offers for you. So in that sense, just, I mean, no harm in it. I think from a privacy sort of regulation or consumer backlash perspective, I think they're very well protected.
1: In the past, you and I have discussed companies in which you've invested or been really interested that have what I would classify as exceptional leaders or management teams. How do you think about that through the lens of Cardlytics? Like, what is impressive about them to the extent there's interesting things to mention? What matters? I feel like every business, kind of the quality of the management impacts its prospects on some spectrum. How does that figure here?
2: It has many constituencies as a business. It's a multi set of constituency business. Lynn and Scott came out of banking. And they are, I would say, really top-notch when it comes to dealing with big banks. It's not a coincidence that they figured this out, that they were successful in getting Bank of America to implement it. This is an area where they have deep native understanding. The challenge that they faced, though, was that over time, the organization was constantly starved for cash. I think it would be fair to say there was a period of time where they were hiring who they could not necessarily following the Netflix model of paying top of market for the very best. I think when I first encountered the business they were in the process of there are lots of great people who've left for lots of reasons and I don't want to, anyone who's from Cardlex to feel bad because everyone contributes in a different time along the course of a business but there was the business had come to a point where they could afford to hire people that were not available to them in the past, and they were hiring those people, and they had to make room for them. There was a series of changes and increases in the management capacity that arose, and the result. And I think there was, on my part as well as other people's parts, some degree of uncertainty as to whether Lynn, as CEO, had the bandwidth as the business need went from being we have to win on the bank side to we've really won on the bank side. Now we have to build the ad tech and win on the advertising side. Was Lynn, did she have that ability to sort of build that part of the organization? And over the last two years, they've made huge strides there. And I think that question has been answered. I think the team that they've built is extremely good. And also, it's sort of interesting, You know, they had an investor day, and I've rarely had the experience of sitting at a table with a bunch of people from a management team and just it being so profoundly obvious how different the skill sets were of the different people involved. You know, you've you got a product guy who would be right at home and was right at home at a Pinterest and just sort of really into software development, that sort of stuff. And then you've got a really well-spoken woman who's very careful about what she says and very thoughtful and very bright and obviously does an amazing job of navigating the halls of large banks. Um, and then you've got a salesperson who is bright and charming and motivating, and you know, and like with clearly the Avengers or something. <laughs> <laughs> right. They've done a great job of building that team. They're in a really good spot now, but there were gaps.
1: As an investor, would you say that the emphasis you place on the quality of management has changed through your evolution as an investor, for one direction or the other?
2: A friend of mine said that investing with a good management team is akin to breakfast, having the the toast always falls off the table, butter side up. And I've invested in with teams where the toast always lands butter side down and so frustrating. I've come to appreciate that more. I do tend to think management teams in sort of a one dimensional way, like good and bad. I tend to think it's more the right fit for the problem that people should think about. And the team, it's really, there's sort of a whole notion of the people, but also sort of the whole culture by which I mean norms, processes, beliefs that they all share that really make a business work. It's much more holistic than like you met with the CEO and was the CEO smart. It's this idea of like, this is a collection of people with capabilities who integrate in a certain way. Is that collection of people and the way they integrate and the things that are important to them, does that make them an effective unit to go compete? which is different, I think, than maybe a more surface level. Like I met the CEO, super bright guy, you know, really thoughtful about the business.
1: If we think long-term about the financial model of the business itself, we didn't dive too much into, we talked about the revenue and the 35 cents and the gross margin slightly under 50% after they share with the bank partner. Maybe do one click deeper for us as we start to think about what this could look like in the future, not just in a gross margin profile, but an overall margin profile. How else does the company have to spend money as it scales? What are the other cost centers in the success case here? What kind of business is this 10 years from now?
2: Yeah, well, for going after enterprise clients or for going after ad agency clients, there is little to no incremental cost associated with winning that would be incurred associated with winning all of them and getting all of them to max out their budgets, max out what they could potentially theoretically spend. So in concept, that's essentially zero. You can add, imagine adding other big sales teams to go after CPGs and stuff, but you know, you're know you talking a dozen people, yeah. right? I mean, these are small groups, I mean, in the scheme of things. Where it gets a little more complicated is if you start thinking about you really want to build like more and more technology capabilities, you're going to build a solution for movie theaters that allows them to do the stuff I talked about. You're going to go out and start actually addressing certain small business verticals such that you've built like a pre-cooked solution uh car wash can just sort of like click into. You're going to be building integrations into a gazillion different SaaS software companies that are going to be distributing this for you. Like you can start imagining more tech and dev spend to sort of do more, but there isn't per se any other than just kind of bench strength and technology and modest amount of incremental sales to go after ad agencies and eventually you're going after CBGs and stuff and, and manufacturers that there really isn't a lot. So margins over time ought to start to converge. To, operating income margins ought to start to converge to more towards gross margins. And for what it's worth, the direction of travel and all the bank renewals ever has been for an improvement in the revenue share mix towards card analytics.
1: If we had this whole time in the room with us, a smart investor who most hated this business, what do you think they would be yelling at us about right now for having not talked about or not properly addressed?
2: People worry. Well, one sometimes you hear people worry about the management team. Two, you hear people worry about just the size of the channel. I think it isn't intuitive to people that tens of billions of dollars or a hundred billion dollars or more of offers could be distributed in this channel, which doesn't really look kind of at all like that. I don't, I think there's people who've really thought a lot about it who worry ultimately about the banks doing it themselves, but it's definitely the thing somebody would thinking about it relatively early. That's a hurdle you have to think through, and if you don't agree with my analysis there, then you go find something else to buy.
1: What about the interface layer? So let's think about Google or Facebook. Mm-hmm. Like They are unbelievably good at getting you to use Google and Facebook. What about skepticism around maybe a bank sucks at getting you to open a mobile banking app, which is key to see the ad inventory? Yeah.
2: This does rely on the bank's staying relevant. There's a number of competitors to banks that are worth considering. One is the neobanks, Cardlytics, your Venmos, et cetera. The good news there is that Cardlytics built its tech stack to serve Chase, et cetera. And as a consequence, it was definitely not the new modern API architecture, et cetera, at, say, the beginning of 2020. And they were in a process of building, for the new UI UX, Is actually a whole new platform on the bank side as well as on the UI, UX side, etc. Unfortunately, this company, DOSH, which has a small offer distribution with sort of a social component to it, they'd built a more modern tech stack. And they'd actually had some success winning some neobanks as the provider of this offering for them. And so the company ended up buying DOSH because they'd basically fallen behind. And there was a sort of question of like, do you basically give these people you know, four or 5% of your company to ensure that there's no chance that you could lose your monopoly? Or do you try over the next six months to a year to like build your own platform and then go win these neobanks back? And so they bought it, which I think was a good choice. Now they have a modern platform, plus the legacy platform's been modernized, and they're actually gonna run two platforms, one for neobanks, which is lighter and easier and has less regulatory stuff and is designed more for what the neobanks are looking for, and one for Chase, Bank of America, who have a whole lot of concerns that the neobanks just don't have. And they're going to run separate platforms. But the good news is now they have the platform that's the winning platform amongst neo banks, And so there really isn't a strong competitor there either. And of course, they're improving their reach on the advertiser side and whatnot, self-service platform, all that stuff. So there's, I think, every reason to think that they'll end up winning the neo banks, And then as the neobanks grow, this will actually work to their advantage because the neobanks fragmentation in the banking industry is good for card analytics I'm not so worried about competition with legacy banks from the neobanks the next risk which I think you mentioned is this idea. And by the way, that applies to like, say, Square, for example, too. Square is trying to do something like this. But the ability to get offers from Square merchants in your Square cash account is like neither interesting to merchants nor consumers, (laughs) because there's not that many Square merchants and there's not that many Square cash users. And so it's kind of like nobody wins doing it through Cardlytics. You could get real offers. Square ultimately, I think, I mean, we'll see if and when they eventually get there or whatever and like all these things. But there's been a lot of industrial logic for Square to distribute the ability of Square merchants to use Cardlytics to advertise not only at Square, but also Bank of America, and also for Square cash users to be able to get offers, not just from Square merchants, but also, say Starbucks, maybe they occasionally go to. And so, anyway, so the next question is this idea is, can the bank's apps be intermediated? Historically, I would have described it as something like a mint layer. I think Google has like an app skin that they want you to basically go into and like put your banking information into, and then now you're going to be able to bank in this Google app, and then they're going to layer ads and stuff on top of it. It's a risk. One of the things about banking is that people really don't change banks very much. And there's nothing about the Google offer that strikes me as meaningfully, if at all, better than the offers from the big banks, certainly not 10 times better. There was a bank executive once who, I used to study banks a lot more. At one point in the distant past, I was a Wells Fargo owner. When I was doing work on that, a bank executive told me a story about how, like, there was some bank that had really bad customer service. And so the customers, they could have left the bank, but that was too hard. So they left dead fish in the safe deposit boxes because it was easier to do that. People just don't change banks that often. I mean, customer retention is the pain about. the butt. And it's not like the Google skin is like that. Ooh, wow. It like changed my whole world. It's like, it's the same thing. It's an extra step, and they have to know about it. I don't know; it just it does not seem like a winning formula to me. But if that were to evolve in some way, then obviously, you know, that's a, a risk to card
1: One of the things we like to do to wind down these conversations is think about, especially with such an interesting business that sits at the center of a large set of stakeholders the biggest lessons studying it has taught you, both for operators, if your next job was to go be an entrepreneur and build a business, like what would you take away from your experience studying carteletics to maybe bring with you? And also for investors, like how the way you view the world, some sort of model that you view the world through has evolved or changed as a result of studying this business. Maybe we'll start with operators. What about studying this company? If you wanted to go build a successful business as, say, a CEO, would you take with you?
2: I think the simple answer is I don't think I'd be very successful building a business. (laughs) It's really hard. I mean, there are businesses out there that there could have been many competitors. There are many competitors. There can be many competitors. It's not winner-take-all. But there are people who build much bigger, more successful businesses than others. And there, in the end, it's because Team A outran Team B. And then there are businesses that ultimately there's like a golden ring of monopoly-like that somebody gets to. There's a lot of reasons why they get to it or not. And then kind of once they get to it, it's sort of theirs to lose. And I think Cardlytics is kind of in the latter camp. It's been hard. They've made lots of mistakes. At one point, they had a relatively not talented team. They've gotten a much more talented team. I mean, there's just been a lot of things that have happened. It's not obvious that there's any sort of takeaways that you learn from that other than, like, get into a business where you're where going you to you be a <laughs> 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 monopoly. Um, you know, I have a friend once who, who made a good point. He said, the first decision an entrepreneur makes is which business to go into. And it says something about how good a decision-maker they are.
1: And does that boil down to like door one is I can be a best version of some linear spectrum of quality and wealth management, let's say. And door two is like ironclad monopoly that, you know, is in antitrust hearings or something in D.C. Does that generally boil down to the kind of traditional... Barriers to entry, sustainable competitive advantage that everyone talks about, right? It's about we've talked about scale and network effects, and obviously there are some other generally accepted ones. Do you think that that's basically it?
2: No. And the reason is that, I mean, the world is really competitive. And so if it's obvious that there's a path to like a really great business, they- it gets taken or it doesn't work for some good reason. And so usually in these stories, there's some sort of we started the business thinking A, and like by the time we got to step Y, we realized that actually we could be a monopoly. It's very unusual to see a business where someone was like, yes, like here was our path, here's what victory looked like, and we were just going to go there. It happens, I have seen it, but it's definitely not the norm. And also there's a lot of businesses, I mean, I'm not right about these things all the time. Like the guy starts the business and I'm like, ah, there's no way this doesn't get competed to zero. Like, enjoy yourself, you're gonna work really hard and make consumers happy, but you're never gonna make any money. Five years later, I'm like, oh, that's why competitors won't be able to match that offer. (laughs) Interesting, I wish I'd known. (laughs) I tend to think that people end up doing things that seem to make sense to them and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. It's hard.
1: The place we'll close is you as an investor, so maybe you don't think you'll be a good CEO. I think you think you will be a good investor. What has updated, evolved, changed about the way you view other companies as a result of having spent a lot of time understanding and studying Cardletics? I don't know if it's
2: updated or evolved or changed. I like to think that in some sense, a business's value is something like it's competitive advantage times it's TAM. And I tend to think about that idea a lot. And I did before cardlytics, but I think Cardlytics is sort of the clearest example that I've come across of something like that. Similarly, in an engineering, if you're thinking about like systems analysis or something, you can often think about the steady state of the system as time goes to infinity. Like where do you go to? What's sort of the yeah. end point? And that is in some sense a much easier analysis. Not in some sense. That is almost always a much easier analysis than understanding the path that it's going to take to get there. And I think Cardlytics is very much, in my mind, falls into that camp. I'll talk with someone, and they'll have a hundred reasons why, you know, this is hard to grow. And I say, you know, every one of those reasons is right. But here's the thing: like, water goes downhill, and I just don't see advertisers not taking the free money in the long term, and I don't see consumers not taking the free money in the long term, and I don't see banks not connecting the two. And so, maybe I'm wrong, but like, I just think it makes so much sense for everyone. Like, they'll eventually have to find their way there. This idea of focusing on the what, not the when, and not being too concerned about the path—none of it's new, but it's really kind of on display in this particular investment because it's so hard. I mean, I have no idea what Cardolitics' revenue is going to be in five years. Like, I mean, I could make a guess. I could walk you through a bunch of numbers. They'd multiply. I'd, I'd get the arithmetic right. But like, I have no idea. I mean, there's so many tipping point effects here, so much positive feedback. I mean, I think I'm going to be wildly wrong. I think it's
1: very skewed. Well, this has been so much fun. It's one of those businesses that I've learned a lot about, both from you, but also just reading about it in preparation for today. And I love that closing idea of competitive advantage times TAM. Like, I just think each of those things is nuanced and sneaky, and sometimes TAMs look way smaller than they are, and all that good stuff, all those good disclaimers. But this has been such a fun deep dive. Cliff, I really appreciate you taking the time to do it with me. Thank you. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this breakdown of Cardlytics. Despite being around for over 10 years, it feels like the Cardlytics story has just begun. It's a business that highlights how inertia can often get in the way of data-supported change.
0: To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out JoinColossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com.